For so long, we've heard crypto stories be told, and it's really all about line go up and all about the hype. I think there's more stories that we can tell, and we think there are better stories to tell, real use cases. We want to focus on pragmatism, and we really want to step away from the hype and speculative nature that we've seen in crypto so far. That's Guerrick Diwana, MFS Africa's head of crypto and my co-host for a new show called Crypto at Scale. My name is Justin Norman. I'm the founder and host of The Flip Podcast, and together with Guerra, we're excited to introduce you to Crypto at Scale, a pragmatic and hopefully hype-free exploration of the crypto ecosystem across the African continent. Today's episode is a conversation with Guerra, recorded live last month in Nairobi. African markets are a place where crypto has seen meaningful adoption to solve real problems and where, we believe, there's a lot of promise for a crypto-enabled future. But we're wary not to overstate its potential either. And in this conversation, we share our perspectives on the sector, the use cases we find the most interesting, the challenges we find most pressing, why we're launching a crypto show in the middle of a bear market, and what you can expect from us and this show. So without any further ado, introducing Crypto at Scale. Good evening, everybody. My name is Justin Norman. I'm sitting here next to my new co-host, Guerra Kiwana, for the launch of a brand new show from The Flip that we're calling Crypto at Scale. And for those listening at home, that is not a soundtrack. We're here in front of a live audience in Nairobi. So a big thank you to all of you for joining us here tonight. Guerra, how's it going? Good. Yeah, I'm uh, feeling loose, feeling goosey. Yeah. Uh, People Ready actually to, showed up. Yeah, on Valentine's Day too. So yeah. thank you guys, all the single people maybe, I don't know. So we're here tonight to launch our new show, Crypto at Scale, which is going to be an African-focused crypto show from The Flip. I think a lot of people are probably wondering, why are you guys launching a crypto show, especially in this market environment? So I want to talk first about why we're doing this, get into some of our interests and values and what listeners can expect from us and from this show. So Guerra, do you want to kick us off a little bit with a big vision of what we're doing here? Yeah. So for so long, we've heard crypto stories be told, and it's really all about line go up and all about the hype. I think there's more stories that we can tell, and we think there are better stories to tell, real use cases. We want to focus on pragmatism, and we really want to step away from the hype and speculative nature that we've seen in crypto so far. I think the time has come. We're now in a bear market. Some people might be sad to hear that. Maybe you lost a little bit of money. Maybe you may have lost a job. But I, I think this is probably the best time to be discussing real-world use cases in the bear market, but also contextually, let's zoom in a little bit more and focus on the Africa use cases across the continent. This is where crypto is really going to shine and the killer use case is going to be found here. Yeah. I think there's no wonder or it shouldn't perhaps come as any surprise that guys like Jack and Vitalik have taken trips recently to explore the crypto ecosystem in particular. So just to really drill down and to talk about crypto in the African context, I think that the market conditions and the environment that we're operating in is particularly interesting for crypto, right? That's why guys like Vitalik and, and Jack are, are taking trips here. And so it's not just that we're doing business in Africa, but it's particularly interesting, a particularly interesting opportunity to talk about it in this context on the continent. And I think some of these characteristics we should talk a little bit about before we talk about use cases. I think for you, Guerra, and your role at MFS Africa, obviously, just first and foremost, this idea about how difficult it is to move money across borders and what things like stablecoins mean as an opportunity. Do you want to say a little bit about the sort of conditions that we're talking about here from a crypto perspective? Yeah. So MFS Africa is, I'm, I work at MFS Africa, I'm leading crypto 
there. And our DNA of the business has been, for so long, moving money across the continent, in and out of the continent. And we just are really damn good at doing that. But I truly believe that cross-border payments is indeed a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. We're sitting in Nala's office. Nala has a pretty core feature in their app that is a comparison feature because everyone's kind of just like racing to the bottom in, in terms of pricing. And the way that moving money cross borders right now exists is just not fit for purpose. It is more expensive to move money within Africa than between European countries or between America and Europe. And that's absolutely ridiculous. So I think that one of the killer use cases is just going to be solved by stable coins, really, moving money across borders. The other contextual piece that I want to touch on is the P2P story of Africa and how the DNA of how a lot of money movement on the continent, mobile money even, was initially founded on people doing P2P payments of airtime. And now we're seeing P2P payments dominating the crypto usage adoption in Africa. Yeah. And from a peer-to-peer perspective, I mean, for me, growing up in the US with pretty well-serviced financial services... There was a lot of unlearning about why crypto has taken off, why NFTs are valuable, right? And in this context in particular, where there is inherent trust in peer-to-peer networks and maybe less trust in institutions or, or intermediaries, I think a lot of the crypto story just makes a lot more sense. There's not as much unlearning as you know us Westerners have to have about why it's so interesting, why these things are valuable, why peer-to-peer has taken off to the extent that it has. I think this sort of fragmentation that exists, this informality that exists, really lends itself well to decentralized systems. So I think there's no wonder that peer-to-peer payments have taken off to the extent that they have from a crypto perspective as well. Another thing that I'm particularly interested in in the crypto context, obviously, is just like this African macro story, right? And the flip, we're publishing right now a new season on the future of work. And every episode, I'm starting with the same statistics around the population is going to double by 2050. They're adding more people to the workforce than the rest of the world combined in the next 10 years, right? What is the infrastructure that needs to support all of that? And people look at Africa from a next billion users perspective. Ethereum Foundation has a next billion users initiative, as do traditional companies like Google as well. And so that is a a really important part. And then I also just think exclusion from the global fintech ecosystem, right? So you talked about payments. I've tried to make payments to people in Ghana, Nigeria, and had the remittance companies shut my account down. I'm sure there are many others in this room who have had that issue as well. So that's a really important thing as well. So I think all of that makes crypto worth interrogating further from an African perspective. I think it's really interesting. And with that, do you want to sort of transition to some use cases a little bit? We talked about stablecoins first. That's, I know, your baby that you're living and breathing at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I love stablecoins. Mass adoption of of crypto is going to be, it's going to look and feel like something we understand. And we understand currencies like the dollar, things that are stable. And stablecoins really also, we're going to do a whole episode on stablecoins, but it's something that I, I think is, is really, it's a use case. It's actually filling a gap that exists right now across the continent and makes it a lot cheaper to do things like move money, exchange value. I want to ask just a question of you in your dealings about this idea of, we talk about stablecoins from a cross-border payments perspective, right? And also in the context of like a lack of USD access in countries that have an import or an export deficit, right? There's a lot of news that's going on today around BUSD and the issues with algorithmic stablecoins in the past and all of that, the trust stuff. What do you think about that? Because I think if we're going to have a pragmatic conversation about something like stablecoins and the opportunity for them to really be transformative from a commerce perspective on the continent, what sorts of things need to happen for big business, for institutions to 
actually believe that story and to use them more for the volume of transactions that are meaningful in this context? I think, step away from the, I think the institutional use case, I think here is what you're alluding to, because the institutional use case has been solved for almost with stable coins. There's a ton of liquidity that is being moved between Black Rocks and whatever, all these large institutions. And the funny thing is a lot of that movement is happening with organizations outside of Africa. The stablecoin use case here in Africa is, is heavily retail. I think the stat was 80% of transactions on chain in Africa are P2P retail use cases. And a lot of that is using stablecoins like BUSD, Binance USD, which is issued by Paxos. We're seeing Tether, USDT, is doing a lot of really great work in the space, and they've got a ton of liquidity. Circle, not so much, because they, they haven't really focused heavily on Africa quite yet, but I think the stablecoins are permeating, and we're seeing a lot more liquidity. I mean, I'd wager to say like it's a lot easier to find a USDT than to find an actual US dollar in Nigeria, for example. Places where real actual financial hurdles are being met by populations. So the devaluation of our currencies... We're not economists. We don't have time to go and argue at parliament with these old men who just don't care about anything except for the, their next land cruiser. We're not going to fix the economy ourselves. So people have found a way to leapfrog that. And the big use cases are holding value. So I would like to have the money that I receive that I have now to hold its weight and not to devalue with the currency in a year. I would like to actually save in DeFi. I would like to have my... $10 a month that I save actually grow. And this is what we're seeing people use stablecoins as, as, not only for exchanging value, but also to store value that holds itself, but also to protect wealth, to build wealth, and, and really just the next generation is leapfrogging traditional systems. Yeah. And I, I hate love hate that word, leapfrogging, because I'm sick of hearing it. Talked about it with mobile money for so, so long, but it's happening again. Yeah. Now, you just talked about the big use case so far is retail, though. We're going to talk a little bit later about why we chose the name crypto at scale. But from a scale perspective, the institutions are the ones that are interesting, right? Because of the volumes that they use. And so are we going to get there? We talk about this lag in the African context. I mean, it's one thing for people to be moving smaller volumes P2P, but what then needs to happen for these big institutions to actually come to the table and start using this in a meaningful way as well? Well, the first thing is regulation, right? I think ABSA is not going to adopt a stablecoin for its internal settlement as its internal settlement currency if they are afraid that they're going to lose their banking licenses in, in the countries that they operate in because the regulators are so punitive because they don't understand crypto as well. So regulation is kind of a no-brainer as like one of the hurdles that needs to kind of be overcome. And really, I think that we're going to have a whole episode on that as well. But I think that the way forward really is, is a coordinated approach with private players in the market. So fintechs that are interested in crypto, crypto natives, foundations as well, because we need to keep ourselves honest and have like actual crypto for good in the conversation. But institutions are not going to adopt this until, or at least publicly, adopt. I can tell you for a fact, there's banks and large financial institutions in Africa that are moving money in stablecoins yeah. quietly. But I think that for this to be at scale, we need to see a pretty coordinated effort across, yeah. across the board. So before, I want to make a point, but before I do, are there any like Bitcoin maxis in the room? None. Really? Well, yeah, that's interesting. It's a but safe space. You can, you can say, yeah. You can say. The reason why I ask that question is because this idea of regulated crypto as well, right? As a theme that's going to cut across our future shows, 
this idea about how decentralized or how centralized does something need to be and the role of regulation in particular. So I think we're putting a stake in the flag or whatever that saying is saying, we think that crypto should be regulated, or at least you are, right? I haven't yeah. made my mind up yet. But I'm you're fully saying. begging to be regulated. I think that it unlocks... I think I heard someone in the crowd go, yeah. <laughs> but it un it, it's a huge unlock. You know, regulation allows organizations like the UN, various development organizations can actually now adopt this safely and freely without having to worry about being shut down. So there's a lot that can happen if, if this is done at scale. And regulation, as much as governments, some, sometimes we don't trust our governments, but that's why I'm advocating for a more coordinated approach yeah. with, with the multiple people at the table who can advocate for this. And what, what about CBDCs? So there's all of these central banks that are saying, we're not going to regulate, we're just going to create our own stablecoin. You know, we can uh, boo? We can boo. <laughs> do, we, do we hate CBDCs? Let, let's see from the crowd. Just like a woo or a boo for CBDCs. We should ask the Nigerians in the room what they think. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got Wiesel Jalakasi, I'm going to name him by name, yelling, <laughs> hyping up the e-Naira. Cool. What do you think? So, I think CBDCs are inevitable. It's digital money. To an extent, to, here in Kenya, M-Pesa is basically a CBDC. I mean, it's not, it's a private company that, is, that, well, that is moving it and it's being issued by the central bank. But I think that having CBDCs could do a lot of good for things like projects and, and things like universal basic income, relief. For example, during COVID, if there's a CBDC, the government of Kenya could easily have given every household a paycheck, right? So there is some good that could be done from that. But also, maybe privacy is very important as well. So like, that's my bear case for, for CBDCs, but they're inevitable. We're, we're going to see them come, but ultimately, they're still not solving the problem. So the problems I was talking about, the retail problems of individuals are facing with their currencies devaluing, basically... They're not able to move money as easily. Who knows? Will CBDCs connect cross-border? Will we see the e-Naira connect to the e-Shilling? I don't know. So the jury's still out, but I'm, yeah. I, I, I'm not emphatic about CBDCs. Yeah. I think what we're really talking about in this context as well is this idea of crypto engaging or connecting with the real world, right? We were having this conversation earlier talking about DeFi lending, and they talk about real-world assets, Right. And that is DeFi protocols that lend to companies doing quote unquote real things, not like this over collateralized decentralized exchanges or the tokenization of assets like land deeds, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Or you can get a mortgage on chain or something like that. I don't really like the term real world because it implies that crypto is not the real world. But, you know, I think maybe some would argue that that's true. But that's, I guess, what we're really talking about in many cases with stable coins and CBDCs and as well as with DeFi, the sort of applicability in one's everyday life. You talked about the ability to get a loan, but right now it doesn't really make sense for you to get an over collateralized loan from a, a DeFi protocol. So I know that people are building towards that, towards the ability to do that. It's not necessarily better in the real world here in a country like Kenya, where you know they're offering mortgages for 15% with an outrageous amount of collateral. But what do you think about from a DeFi perspective and our sort of perspective and point of view from a content perspective about what's interesting in DeFi and what's happening there. I mean, so the real world asset piece. So for those who, just to explain a little bit about what Justin said about over collateralized lending. Over collateralized lending is basically when an entity lends to you, but you put up collateral that is exceeding the amount of value that you're taking out. That's so it's often, it's often like 150% 
exactly. of the value of the loan. So you're putting up more money than you're more actually getting More money than back. you can actually. And this is a financial tool that is used by the wealthy elite. And it's something that is not accessible to the average person. So the way that it exists right now, over-collateralized lending is, is not really going to find its, I guess, explosive use case there. But there's organizations working on providing affordable lending to individuals that are under-collateralized or not collateralized at all even. And we're seeing protocols crop up that are working in Africa, especially. We're going to name drop like Goldfinch, Maple, Credics, and... Simplifies in the room as well. Simplify as well. Uh, yeah. So the work is being done. And I think that this is, again, it's solving for a real problem, which is people not being able to access credit purely because of where they live. The banks that they go to are asking for outrageous repayment terms or, or interest rates. But DeFi, we're just kind of almost getting there where we can really see mass lending happen for real world lending. But that brings me to another point about bridging the real world and, and DeFi or crypto or the world, fiat world. And that's really going to be on and off ramps that drive that change. We still don't have any at scale on and off ramps on the continent, at least, that are enabling people to move seamlessly between fiat and crypto. We're seeing the UI, the UX looks like it, like you're putting in your shillings and receiving USDC or whatever, but it's actually an exchange. People are, are finding pairs of, of various currencies. We still have a long, yeah. long way to go to move it more into DeFi. So there's this sort of age old question around interoperability, right? As well as around getting people to actually spend, right? So I was particularly intrigued last year with like stablecoin, Visa cards and MasterCard cards where rather than having to actually off-ramp that was being handled by the credit card networks or this idea about interoperability that you could pay from USDC directly into someone's M-Pesa account. Do you think that there's like a sort of answer to what that's going to look like that would drive more meaningful adoption in the African context in particular, right? Because in Kenya, where we are today, interoperability is huge. The ability to pay from your bank account to someone's M-Pesa or vice versa. Whereas I suppose this idea of taking it, converting it, or is using it actually going to be the thing because everyone's so used to using M-Pesa that they're just going to, if there's an M-Pesa equivalent in USDC, that's what they're going to be using. We live in a bubble sometimes where people are like, yeah, I'm fully de like, you know, crypto, I'm spending my stable coins and I'm paying rent in stable coins. I'm getting paid my salary in stable coins. I know people who live that lifestyle. And I think that my auntie in Mbara, Uganda, Western Uganda, she's not going to be adopting it that way. I think I can't give a definitive answer about what I, Lisa, what I think the future is going to be. I think it's going to be a hybrid. And I think it's going to be also masked. Like we're going to have to abstract the complexity of crypto away from the way that people use money right now in a more simplified, in more simplified terms. So that yeah. the UX needs to be a lot, like radically more simple. Don't make people work to do things. I think the only people that are actually working are the very small number of people who are adopting crypto and going through all the hoops of setting up a MetaMask and, and figuring out a way to on-ramp and off-ramp using exchanges or ATMs that, that are in various parts of Nairobi. Yeah. But I think it's, it, it's the jury's still out, but I think that we're going to see a hybrid. Yeah, this user experience question brings to mind, obviously, again, this idea about centralization, right? Centralization perceived to be something that's going to lead to a better user experience, notwithstanding the sort of security thing or the security issue in the context of FTX. Thank you. And I suppose that's been talked about for a while, right? And you talked about, you know, your auntie in Uganda 
And the reality, again, in this question of crypto at scale of how mass adoption is going to look, right? So there's the use cases from a payments perspective or stable coins. There's the use cases from a lending. We've talked a little bit about other things, right? Whether it's NFTs or this X to earn sort of thing. There's here in Kenya, there's shop to earn with Nuzo. What do you think about that maybe from a Web3 perspective about this idea of onboarding people into the ecosystem and sort of the every man into the ecosystem, especially in the context of how difficult it is to use DeFi today? Yeah. It's a steep learning curve. So the chasm really is education. And if I had one USDC for every time some foundation or chain or exchange had the word education on the website, I'd have a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone is talking about education, but we really need to figure out a way to drive education that's actually like, it's not biased and not like getting people to use a certain chain. Or I think every one who's doing education in DeFi has a bit of an agenda. But I think that chasm is going to be crossed with education, right? And, and even then, if we get there and, and we're in a world where like everyone is in Web3, I don't think that's going to happen. I think same thing with M-Pesa in Kenya, incredibly ubiquitous, but 90%, 90% penetration rate. But we're still using cash. Has anyone taken the uh, expressway in Nairobi from the airport? We have to use cash on that for the reasons I don't know. It doesn't take M-Pesa? does not take M-Pesa. Some maybe might say that there could be some money laundering going on there. But does it take stablecoins? Soon, I hope, someday. <laughs> but we're still in the world where we're using cash and M-Pesa and mobile money, and, and we're using cash and credit cards and debit cards and checks are still around in America. I don't know. Like I, I think that when it happens at scale, it's going to look familiar. It's going to feel familiar, and it's going to take companies or even or governments or organizations to understand UX. Not just design UX, but I mean the actual user experience. They understand the job your user is trying to do, and they make it frictionless for them to do it, or at least easy. Yeah. And a lot of that is, we understand cash, we understand how money works already, but getting people to understand stable coins, it's just like, it's a, it's, it's just, it's a huge jump. So it, it's a bit of both, and it's kind of like the mullet thesis of... Do you want to say the DeFi mullet? Do you want to say what that is? The DeFi mullet thesis, for those who know me, have heard me go on and on about this a million times. But it's basically, it's a school of thought that I, I subscribe to, which is that mainstream adoption is going to be in the form of a mullet. So the mullet haircut is business in the front, party in the back, ponytail in the back. I think that the mullet is going to be where mainstream adoption happens, where it's going to be fintech in the front. So I mean, at least for financial services, fintech in the front and DeFi powering the back end. So abstracting away that complexity, making it really easy for people to understand and have you ever tried sitting down with, so with anyone who's outside of this world and explaining to them, like, open up a, a wallet and use a bridge to move? You know, it's too many. The UX is horrible. But mainstream adoption is going to be in a way that we all understand it. And it's going to be easy for us to get into. And it just should be well designed. And I'm bullish on designers as well, like UX designers, product managers who understand how to build things for people. But yeah. Yeah. One thing that you and I have also talked about is this idea of who's going to build this? Who's going to design this? Where are they going to come from, right? I think from a global technology perspective, WhatsApp is ubiquitous and Pesa is a homegrown solution, right? I think a lot of the, the applications that are being built most prolifically are global applications, right? Do you think that's going to sort of repeat itself in this context or what does the local building look like and what sort of impact are they going to have from an uptake perspective? I don't know. 
I can't give a clear idea of who's going to build that. I think there's a lot of people scrambling right now. But you've released a, a season right now on the flip regarding the future of work. What have you seen in, in the conversations that you're having? Like, are there a lot of young people, smart people flocking to build in this space? Are we seeing that at the same rate that we've seen in, say, North America or Silicon yeah. Valley? I mean, I think what's particularly interesting about you talked about education before and in the context of the future of work and in the context of how young the population is, right? The average or the median age is under 20. There are a lot of workforce programs, for example, that say, we're going to train you how to do this job, or maybe it's the perceived to be the job of the future. But there's always a sort of lagging indicator of to what extent are they training people for something that's already passed, right? And so we talk a lot about, and, and I think that there are some interesting pilots that happen around what happens if you give somebody like a mobile phone with airtime and a crypto wallet and just let that young person figure it out and go on YouTube and, and learn. And how much does the education have to be prescriptive versus just enabling them and giving them the option to figure stuff out on their own, right? Because even like we're too old to teach people things at this point. And is that what the future of work is going to look like? Is people just sort of learning things for themselves and being given the tools to go explore on their own and figure it out? Or is really explicit and implicit education initiatives really important from the foundations and whoever else because this stuff is just hard and complicated? What do you think? I don't know. I think it's, it's too, like, like you said, we've aged out of the, the young, hip happening on the edge of you know, the next dimension. So I, I can't confidently say who I think is going to build this, but I can say, though, that I'm quite hopeful for big tech. I'm quite hopeful for public-private partnerships with big tech and public bodies that finally maybe come around to understanding how to build the future. I don't know. It's too soon to tell. Yeah. A lot of the crypto, sorry, not adoption, building we're seeing right now is happening in these really amazing grassroots communities. In Kenya, there's a lot of cool stuff going on with the Safari DAO. They put on an ETH conference at the end of last year that was really well attended and a lot of just buzzing energy of people building really cool stuff. So maybe if we think away from the demographic of people that are going to build it from an age perspective and more like, where is it going to come from? Is it going to come from top down or bottom up? And I think it's going to come from both sides and meet in the middle. And then that yeah. sounds so cheesy, but like we're going to see these grassroots communities like Safari DAO, hopefully someday deciding to work with Google. <laughs> okay, maybe not Google, but maybe, maybe, eh, maybe Microsoft with, with the AI that they've got going on. I don't know. Who, who knows? I also think the term permissionless is used a lot in the crypto context. I think that that's interesting in the context also of global fintechs and you go on some cool new app or Twitter launches Twitter Blue and you can't even sign up for it if you're in this region, right? Whereas a lot of these protocols are open source foundations. You can be a contributor if you have the skills or the ability. And then also just crypto being global in nature, inherently global in nature means that people can actually participate. I guess that leads us then to this idea about crypto at scale. We came up with this name for a specific reason. It was actually your name. We debated for a while whether we should actually use the term crypto or not as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about what crypto at scale means to you yeah. and why we decide to so call I'll, it that? I'll start by saying we chose not to call it crypto at scale Africa because we've got <laughs> enough podcasts, enough conferences that have the title Africa in them. We don't hear or see things that say crypto North America or money 2020 Europe. It's money 2020. It's like, you know, they, they're all over the world. For those who don't know, it's a big conference. We didn't use the word Africa because, like we said, crypto is inherently borderless. It is inherently 24 hours. So we, why confine it to just Africa? And also, 
this Africa rising story that we keep hearing, I mean, for those of, in my generation, millennials were kind of sick of it, right? We're sick of this Africa rising. Our whole lives we've heard Africa's, when have we risen? We've risen. Africa has risen. The time has come. So I think now that, he you has know, risen. The, yeah, he has risen. Exactly. She, Africa's a she. So I think that let's stop talking about this Africa rising narrative and focus more on what the topic is and, and the use cases that we're going to see here that proliferate outside of Africa. So what, what do we mean by crypto at scale? We mean this technology, not just cryptocurrencies or tokens or line go up, but also the distributed ledger technology, blockchain technology, the communities that we're seeing and that we're going to speak to lots of really cool people who are building in, in this space while we do this, this podcast. But really, just when we say at scale, we mean at a point where it's ubiquitous, the scale is reached when, again, we won't have to keep talking about like just Africa. It's like yeah. it's actually hit a scale. What do you think about the yeah, title? For me also, this idea about scale is everyone talks about what does scale look like in crypto, right? And I think that it means meaningful and major participation from users and builders on the continent, right? So often you see the map of like, we're a global company and there's nothing in Africa, right? So especially I think because of the use cases and the market conditions and the characteristics at scale to me means a really meaningful participation on the continent. Yeah. And participation on the continent that, like I said, proliferates beyond Africa. We're going to also do, just to wrap up, one thing at the end of every episode, which is talk to our guests about predictions and a wish list or things that we wish to see in this space. So I didn't think of any. So you go first. Oh, what I are your think, predictions? I didn't think and, of any either. I think I asked oh. you to do this today and oh. I, oh man. All right, I can go. My wish yeah. list is that we become a leading crypto-focused podcast in Africa, meaningfully contribute to the discourse compel people to stop talking about speculation and hype and really focus on what's interesting and getting involved in meaningful ways and the extent to which through content and storytelling and narrative and insights and education, we can help move the industry forward in our little way. That's my, you know, separate but related to. I guess my wish list now is kind of connected to the podcast as well. I kind of wish to have this podcast be something that people around us, our friends, our colleagues, the communities around us, just shift the thinking of what crypto is and kind of rebrand this thing. I mean, for so long, crypto has kind of been in like a club with crypto bros who are all minting, making lots of NFTs. Let's move away from that and actually make it accessible and explain the real world use cases. And I really want to be in a position where I'm not asked by an investor or regulator why we're not investing in Shiba Inu. Yeah. I feel like you made fun of me as a crypto bro minting NFTs. That was, that was a dig at me. This is not going to be a crypto bro podcast. I can no. tell you that for sure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crypto at Scale. If you enjoyed this episode, please do consider sharing with a friend or a colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. For more updates from the show, follow us on Twitter at Crypto at Scale. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.